Hey, Caitlin. Hey, what a time to be alive, Renee. Well, you know, you could have just walked over to my house. Well, I wanted to respect the bubble. You've been in a bubble. I can't I can't reintroduce you to society too shockingly. You'll freak out. Yeah, well, I've had five COVID tests in the last like three weeks. So I think I would have been, I, I, I know that I'm negative. You could have sat across the other side of the room, but instead you're choosing to Zoom me to do our podcast. You know what? I wanted to maintain a professional distance. I too have been getting lots of coronavirus tests because my son has now entered his bubble. We're potting for his school. So everybody's real uptight about it. But my pod is pretty boring compared to your pod. First things first, you've spent the last couple of weeks in a bubble. What's that been like? What, what give, give us the inside details. Inside details of the US Open? Of the bubble. Is it like ET where he like goes and gets uh, attacked by everybody in biohazard suits? That's kind of what I was picturing. Well, okay, I'm going to be really honest here because you know me. Um, I wasn't in the player bubble. Uh, the player bubble was uh, different to what I was in. I was in a different bubble with the ESPN crew and the ESPN talent. We were at the LaGuardia Marriott Hotel and we were all there. Um, so we were shuttling back and forth in our own private cars uh, to the courts so we could stay um, you know, COVID free as much as possible. We uh, were having tests, we were getting tested every four days like the players. Um, the players were in a different bubble. They were in a really massive hotel outside in Long Island. Uh, you literally got, I mean, every player, every single one of them was getting bussed in and out. It was kind of like junior days, you know, no one, no private cars, no nice Mercedes Benz picking them up and they were getting picked up in buses and brought to the courts and shuttled through. You had to have a certain like tag around your badge to prove that you had done your COVID test, that you were, your temperature was okay. Um, and we had to do that as well, all the ESPN crew, because we were the only media that were around the players. So they really were tight on us, making sure that we were absolutely, um, you know, as COVID free as all the players. So, you know, we went through every protocol. I mean, you saw me, uh, anytime I got onto the TV uh, courtside, I always had a mask on. I mean, everything was done as well and as appropriately as anyone could have asked for. Um, and, you know, we were, we were calling matches even in our booths, in separate booths. We were not in the same booth. So it was, you know, the fact that we were actually calling matches, not being able to see one another was pretty remarkable. And when I was courtside, so there's three of us in three different spots. So the fact that it came across on television, like we're in the same booth was pretty, pretty amazing. But for the players, I think a lot of them were fine with it. They provided a lot of, you know, extra, extra fun events at the hotel and, um, you know, golf simulators and pool tables and, you know, all the stuff that you, you can, you want. And I mean, for a week or two, you can deal with it. Um, and I think a lot, some players even really liked it because they like sort of isolating and they don't necessarily, they don't necessarily love their nightlife or anything of New York. They just want to go about their business. And a lot of them did that. A lot of them did well, um, where people kind of like that. Yeah, it was interesting to watch, first of all, the players watching each other. It seemed like a big source of entertainment was sitting in those Arthur Ashe suites and watching the other matches. Sometimes you can see players watching each other, scouting each other maybe. But it looked like they were actually just kind of watching for fun, right? Like it was maybe one of the few things you could do once you were on the grounds. And it was really nice. Like it felt like they were spectators like we were. Yeah, I, I actually said on, on, on the air, I think I said, I, I'm kind of requesting that the USTA get a suite and, and, and make it for players only. I think it'd be so cool because so many times, you know, players love to just like love to sit and watch. And we, one thing we do is when we're waiting for matches, we all sit and watch the television in the locker room. So this time, rather than sitting and watching in a locker room, you saw the players out watching it live and in person in their suites. Obviously, those suites, 
won't be available next year, hopefully, as long as the crowds are back. Um, but I think it'll be cool to have one suite available just to the players and see who kind of goes up there and watches matches. Obviously, it's a lot of money for the USTA to lose out on, but <laughs> I don't know. I, maybe we can get a sponsor out there. Maybe we can get a sponsor out there that sponsors the players' the players suite so you can see players go up there and watch matches because it was super cool to see it. And uh, obviously, Alex, I mean, Zverev and team were out all the time. They're always watching the women. And, you know, you saw... You saw I mean, Sophia Kennan and Azarenka and Kim Kleises. And yeah, it was cool. It was great to see. Look, when you're in Ash and you're invited to go to one of those suites, and sometimes those are, you know, the most luxurious experiences, you get a ticket that also corresponds with a seat. And for whatever reason, the extremely rich people who are invited into those suites don't always use up the seats in the stadium. So it would be really cool if they were just to allow players to take those seats whenever possible, and then you could like, you know, scan the crowd and see them, see them watching and cheering. For me, it was like a really, really cool value add um, just because they like tennis as much as we do, as it turns out. And they like spectating as well. Um, one yeah. Thing- but I, and the problem is the great thing for the players is that they didn't have to, and, and I don't want the fans to take this the wrong way, but they didn't have to deal with the fans. They didn't have to deal with the fans asking them for autographs and asking for pictures and, you know, most players don't get to go and watch tennis matches live because they get kind of hassled for photos and tickets and autographs. So, I mean, you know, for autographs and things. So in this respect, they knew that they could go and sit and watch a match and not be kind of, you know, harassed by uh, by the public. And and I, I mean that in the nicest way, but, you know, that's part of it. I mean, even players talked about, hey, I'd never walked out to the court the uh, the court of champions that you know the entrances and they hadn't even seen their pictures up or there so it was nice for them to sort of walk around the, the uh, actual grounds and because they, they don't usually get to do that that's actually really interesting and cool for anybody who doesn't know the the court of champions is that entrance that's sort of the south part of the stadium that you come in uh, sort of opposite Arthur Ashe when you don't come in on the seven train or the LIRR um, and it's a part of the stadium I don't think yeah a lot of people see because a lot of people just go to Ashe and, you know, I think my favorite part of the U.S. Open is just getting a grounds pass and going and wandering around. Um, so it's really cool to think the players could do that, too. So while we're still on the subject of the bubble, most people seem to be able to handle the pressure protocols uh, rule following that a bubble requires. But not all of them, including my favorite, Benoit Pair. Mm. Well, if there was ever a player that was going to get in trouble, um, it was going to, if we had to take a guess out of 10 players, I think that Benoit would be at the top of the list. Um, and as much as I know, Caitlin, that he is without question your favourite player on tour, um, he is also a bit of a disaster, as you know. <laughs> so the fact that he's the one that got <laughs> the first uh, positive COVID test uh, for a player and then subsequently... Um, cost many, many players uh, an opportunity to play at the US Open. Isn't a surprise. Um, now, there's word on the street of how he got it and why he got it and et cetera, et cetera, and why the test came back positive and then apparently he had another test positive, then he tested negative eventually. Who knows? But of all the players, it's not a surprise that it was that little Benoit pair. Do you think it was fair for the USTA, not getting into the gossip that we've heard that maybe some of his extracurricular activities were to blame, Um, We don't know that, but we do know that what you just alluded to, which is a whole bunch of other players, some of them French, some of them very prominent, Christina Mladenovic, um, and as a sort of casualty, her partner, Timeo Babos, 
uh, and among others, were, were removed from the tournament because they, in the county that they were residing in, in the bubble, the rules were that they could not be outside. Um, what do you make of that? If you're Kiki Mladenovic, are you pissed? Um, well, you know, the, unfortunately, it was kind of out of the hands of the USTA. I mean, once it was in that county, those were the those are the sort of the rules or the laws that if anyone was exposed to someone with COVID um, within a 15 minute window, that they had to quarantine as well. Um, and, you know, I know because I spoke to Kirsten Flipkins and she basically came downstairs and was standing around those guys while they were playing cards for 15 minutes and then went back up to her room. And so she was exposed to them for, you know, 10, 15 minute time frame. She wasn't quite sure, but, you know, she got lumped into that group as well. Um, you know, it's, un, it's, I don't even know how to put it, Caitlin. Like, I feel sorry for everyone that, that went through it. Um, everybody knew sort of like what the protocols were and what the rules were. And, and everybody knew if someone, someone was exposed to somebody else that they were going to have to deal with the ramifications of that. And sadly, that's what happened. Um, you know, I, I don't think we're ever going to see this situation again, but unfortunately those were the, the laws and where they were in Nassau County, those were the rules. Now, um, from what I heard, Manorino apparently had left the bubble to go play his match before the letter or information had been sent to um, the USTA that he was not supposed to leave the bubble. Um, and once he was on site, they kind of, it was kind of out of their hands. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I think he had to have permission to play that day. And, but once, once he was, I mean, if he had won, that would have been a very different story. It would have been almost even more um, controversial, but he lost. And so therefore he had to go into quarantine and Miladanovic had not left the courts, left to the courts um, by the time they knew the rules. And so therefore she could not leave the hotel. So that was kind of what happened, and it was a little bit out of the USDA hands. I feel I feel sorry for Stacey. I feel sorry for the USDA because I mean they they really did everything they could to keep everyone safe and 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 abide by the rules. And unfortunately, we had that incident. I mean, honestly, I'm not surprised. Kind of to your point that a something happened, and that b my guy Benoit, who is not my favorite player on tour, he's my favorite personality on tour, and that is a different distinction that I just want to make sure our listeners appreciate. There, there's a lot of, of, of things about Benoit I appreciate that have nothing to do with the way he swings a tennis racket. If anything, that is one of the lesser, um, the lesser appealing moments. But I think truly considering how high the degree of difficulty was for pulling this off, the USDA did a phenomenal job. This was a high wire act. And the fact that only a few people got deefed uh, for this reason anyway, is, is I think kind of incredible and I want to come back to what they pulled off because now all our eyes are going to be shifting to Europe as Rome and others, notably Roland Garros, is going to try to do the same thing. But we cannot get off the subject of being deefed without talking a little bit about Novak Djokovic. Uh, your commentary that day stood out to a lot of people for its clarity, its uh, its passion, but also the concise and comprehensive way that you explained for those of us following along at home, what had happened. So very briefly, walk us through what happened, and then let's get into the whys and the hows, and the backsplash to the backlash that's still going on about it that we're probably never going to get clear from. You know, Novak was obviously a little bit peeved. Um, it was either that game or the game before, and he belted a ball on the side of the side of the court and uh, I remember James Blake saying he's got to be really careful to do that because if he hits somebody he'll get defaulted 
literally the game before. And so then he lost his serve and he, he probably felt like he could have won the set. It was a, a very close game or two and he, he probably felt like he, he should have already won the set anyway. He got very annoyed and when he lost his serve, um, you know, he took the ball out of his pocket and he just, he didn't really look and he just kind of hit it to the back fence. Now, did he, did he absolutely rip it? No, he didn't rip it like he did the game before, but he still hit it backwards. Um, in He was angry. He lost the game. So there's no doubt that he was frustrated and angry. And so he hit the ball back in the backstop, which to a tennis player is really dumb, okay? Because you know that the one place that you can hit someone is when you hit it backwards because you know there's ball boys and linesmen back there. And so, you know, he did that and the lines lady was standing in right in her position um, behind the court and, you know, obviously wasn't paying attention to him because she may have been able to put her hand up, but he hit a ball and hit her in the neck. And I mean, you know, as a tennis player, when you do something like that, you're done. And he knew immediately that he was going to be done. I could, you could tell from his reaction. You could see it on his face. Every single person, I was watching it on the, um, in our green room at ESPN because I was on the desk that day and I stood up and I go, guys, we've got to go to the desk. He's done. There's no, that's it. He's done. You know, and everyone was kind of reacting differently. And I said, he is done. There is no chance he's not going to be defaulted. We've got to go to the desk. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, Brad was trying to make a, just a comment on that, that he would like to have the umpire have a television screen to be able to review something like that. And my, my, my answer back to Brad in, in the end was, yeah, I w- we would all like to see a TV. I think the umpire should have more looks at something. I think they should have. But the, but the issue is that's not the issue today. The, the issue today was black and white. He turned around. Everybody knew it was him. He hit a ball, hit, hit a lines lady very dangerously in the neck. She couldn't breathe for a second. It must have been very scary for her. And he was done. And there was, there was no choice from the umpire, no from the referee. He walked out there. He, he did not know the referee what had happened because he was in a meeting. So he took the word of the umpire. They went through it blow by blow. Uh, another referee, Andy Egley, was, was there and explained what he saw as well. And there was no choice for Zoran. He just said to, to uh, Novak, you know, he gave him his piece, let him speak his, speak his mind. But everybody knew that there's there's no way around this. And it was sad for the tournament. It was sad for Novak. It was sad for Karenio Bustov, who had just broken him. Who know, Who's to know what would have happened in that match? And uh, he was sent packing. And, you know, obviously a lot of people thought he didn't do it in anger. It's got nothing to do if he did it in anger or if he meant to hit the lady. Clearly he didn't mean to hit the lady. We all know that no one would ever try and hit anyone on a tennis court. But the rules are in place for the rules to protect the linesmen, the ball kids, and the fans if they're there. And we've seen stuff happen in the past where, um, you know, uh, Shapovalov hit, an, hit a ball that didn't, of course, didn't mean to hit the umpire. Hit the umpire in the eye. A guy almost lost his eyeball. So, you know, we have those rules for a reason. And whether someone has intent to hurt someone or not is not the reason why they get defaulted. Anybody who plays tennis knows the second you hit uh, your racket, a ball, anything that is in your control on an umpire, there's not a need for a review. The rule is black and white. As a matter of fact, I had a coach who took my racket away anytime I slammed on the ground, which is why I hate when players abuse their rackets, just because it seems so, uh, you know, un, un, uh, unsporting. I think your commentary on ESPN was so amazing to me because it was in the moment and you so clearly articulated that you knew what it was like to be a hothead on the court and you knew every time 
you would take that gamble that if something, God forbid, would hit somebody, then you're out. Now, what I want to sort of bring up with you is that there are a lot of players who smack balls around and do it pretty carelessly. Um, Novak is definitely one of them and has been for a long time. I'm a little surprised this has never happened before. There was an incident where he threw a racket in Rome. The umpire would have been hit had he not been looking and moved out of the way. You know, other players, players we know and love, who have thrown rackets and and if they get unlucky, they get unlucky. Do you think that there's any sort of contriteness to Novak based on what you saw from his reaction? Did he seem to grasp what had happened or does it not matter? Cause he got the deep and losing in a tournament where he very, very clearly was the favorite, maybe is punishment enough. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I think the punishment was enough. I think it was a massive lesson learned by him. He now didn't didn't add to his Grand Slam record, which you know may come back to bite him one day. I don't know. Um, yes, he has been contrite before in press conferences. We showed it. Um, I believe we may have showed it on ESPN when he was asked by a reporter at a tournament in Europe when he hit a ball that went very close to a linesman in the past, and he said, "Aren't you worried you may hit someone one day?" And he really blew it off and was like, "Come on, you guys, like you know." Uh, and, and I mean, it's on the internet. You can you can look it up. So I think this was a lesson for him. I mean, it's a lesson for it's a lesson for everybody that you have to control what you're doing with your racket and with a ball in your hand. And he actually threw his racket the week before in the Western Southern. He almost he almost hit a security guard. Um, so you know, they, they, I, I don't know if he'll stop doing it. It may be just a reaction that he can't help himself because he does hit the ball back quite a lit a lot in matches. Um, but I, I, I hope it's a lesson learned by him and, and for a lot of tennis players that you got to be careful or if it can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, obviously we'll, we'll see if he responds by going out and winning the French Open with like a newly sort of invigorated sense of mission or if he kind of goes on a walkabout. But there is something else we should briefly talk about when we're talking about Novak Djokovic, which is the... And this, our tweeters asked us to talk about a little bit, which is the creation of the PTPA, the Professional Tennis Players Association, along with Vashek Pospisil, which aims to do something. And I think I'm, I'm not trying to be glib about what it's aiming to do. I think John Wertheim in some of his famous 50 takeaways from the U.S. Open column kind of listed the efforts he had made to try to get an answer out of various folks who had signed up for this thing. Is it a union? Is it an association? Does it violate the Sherman Act by being a union of independent contractors? There's a lot of questions. Um, But the biggest one is why didn't they include the women? If this really uh, uh, is supposed to be about uh, making sure players are treated fairly uh, as a, as a group, and they don't currently feel very well represented, why not include the women? The picture that they had announcing their new organization, which was, I think, majority white guys and all men, was not terribly, terribly inspiring. Um, you know, and I think I reacted with a lot of skepticism. Um, I'm open to hearing that maybe I'm not being fair, but given the history of the folks involved, um, I'm not really excited to give them the benefit of the doubt, but I wonder what, if anything, you kind of make of this. Well, apparently Novak said on our air that a couple of women had been approached, but it, it, that's, I have not heard that. Um, so even if a couple of women had been approached to discuss this matter, they should have been in that picture. They should have been a part of that conversation when it happened. And the fact that they weren't proves to me 
that this was not the right timing. And some people might say, well, when's the right timing? The right timing is when you do have women sitting at the table representing the players only. I think the premise behind getting a union for players or having a players representative solely is a great idea. I think it definitely needs to be, if you talk to any pro, they will all tell you it's a good idea, but there is a lot of work to be done with it. And it, I think what we saw with that picture and with the subsequent, you know, sort of running around the, the questions is that they didn't have women at the table and they, and they still haven't brought them to the table enough to be able to be out in the public. Um, so that bothers me. And if anyone watched the US Open, they clearly know that the storylines with the women are starting to become a lot more interesting than the men. And with, without Rafa and Roger, it's a problem and they need to recognize that and they need to understand that tennis is cyclical. You have stars in both sides when it's the WTA or the ATP. And clearly the men have reaped the benefit of having two of the greatest sports athletes and most loved, universally loved athletes in Roger and Rafa, you know, looking like how long do they have left in this sport? Now, Novak is with undoubtedly an international superstar and, could possibly go down as the greatest tennis player of all time when he's finished, but he is universal. He is not universally as loved as Roger and Rafa. And that's just a fact. And when they go away from the sport, can Novak turn into that person? Absolutely. I, I, I think Steffi sort of took over that mantle because she was very quiet and shy and didn't really, wasn't seen in the public very much. But then, you know, as she got older and, people started to really appreciate her and really love her so much, you know? Um, and maybe that might happen with Novak and Rafa and Roger retire. I don't know, but they have to understand the men, that the women are as vital to them and the future of tennis as anything. So, I mean, my, my little bit on it is uh, the timing was not great. It should not have been during the US Open when they were trying desperately to put on the biggest sporting event in the world during the coronavirus time and to give support when they needed support. And that was not the time to do it. And at the end of the year, it should, it should have been at the end of the year when both of these tours are struggling financially. The US Open was, you know, struggling to, to put this event on and it just wasn't, it wasn't good timing. I also thought, you know, look, it's, it's coming up on the anniversary of a lot of notable moments for women's tennis, the WTA's creation, Billie Jean King, you know, uh, what a missed opportunity to sort of say, to your point, we know tennis is cyclical. There's been some chatter Roger and Rafa both expressed some support about a joint tour. I think had Novak and Vasa, Vasek come out and said, yeah, and we, we have five women already excited and signed up for this from the WTA tour. What a different message it would be. I have to imagine they don't care about the women and that's sort of an unforced error. Maybe I'm reading into it, but these are not players who have expressed any interest in, in securing equal pay for women or talking about the women's game very much. Um, you know, I'm not particularly inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt, but maybe that's unfair. I don't know. What do you think? Well, when you've got people on the record saying what they've said about women's tennis in the past, I think you've, we've already answered that question. There you go. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Let's talk about the next generation of men's stars. I was really pleased, truly, truly, that we had two men not in the big three contending for the final, truly. I have a lot of opinions about the final itself, um, but this is not a podcast where we want to necessarily break down somebody's service motion, although Zverev's serve at times looked my like my service motion, which is not a good thing. Um, you know, uh, tr- look, a comeback, a very, very, very tightly contested, if not really well contested final on the men's side. And we have a new champion who I don't think anybody would take it away from Dominic team. I mean, he just deserves it. He's been in three grand slam finals prior to this each time inching closer, you know, what a, I think that that's a great result. I hope he can win more. Um, even when Rafa, Roger and Novak are still in the draw at, at later stages. Do you have any takeaways from the men's final? Yeah, I, I listen, I, I agree with you. Look, I think the standard of the final, the, both of those players will agree that they did not play at their best. <laughs> and, but interestingly enough, what we saw was two guys trying to win a Grand Slam for the first time, knowing if they had been playing Roger or Rafa or Novak, they would have played better. In my opinion, they would have played better because they would have brought the standard up to such a level knowing, I mean, we saw it from Dominic. He was so close to being Novak at the Australian Open. I mean, that was such a great match. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, they both, sometimes you play to the standard of your opponent and not saying that they're both not two great players, meaning that they know they, they probably, if they play really well, they can win as opposed to against the other three, they probably feel like they have to play one of their best matches. Um, so I think down the end, I think what we saw with two players, I mean, they'll be the first to say they, they were choking their balls off. Okay. <laughs> they were choking so bad. I mean, the fact that Zverev, who's six foot six, served, uh, what was it, 68 mile an hour? Or yeah. 78? 68. 68 so, right now. It was in the 60s. Was it really? Oh yeah. my God. It was, you know, and, and, and it barely got over the net. And I thought, oh my God, like I felt so badly for him because, and, and, and on the other side, you've got team who's choking in the fact that he's cramping. I mean, I don't think that was physical for him. That was emotional that was yeah. causing him to cramp. Um, you, you won't get a fitter guy, you know, and he hadn't played super taxing matches. So I think his, the choking came in the form of his body saying, oh, just, just tightening up so bad. And he was cramping and, 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 and poor old Sasha was like, had more opportunities than anyone I've ever seen in history to win a Grand Slam. And neither of them could close the door. And I thought Jiri's comment on Twitter was classic when she said, you know, you can hit a winner to win, a ma- win this match. <laughs> and it was, I mean, but having said that, Caitlin, like, 
I have not been there for a win to win a single semifinal, but I have been there and felt those emotions of feeling like my arm was like picking up 64 bricks instead of just a tennis racket sure, sure. and that your heart rate is racing and your whole body is shaking. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that both of those guys were going through that. And it was just nice to see two really nice guys play to the bitter end and that handshake between the two of them. I love that they hugged. I know it wasn't COVID appropriate, but I love that they hugged each other and gave each other the respect that they did. And I think Dominic de deserves it because he's been so close for so long now. And there's no doubt that Sasha will win another one, but I don't know the speech at the end when he cried and he couldn't have his parents there because of COVID and just everything. I mean, the match was not at the highest of qualities, but I tell you what the drama was and that's why we love tennis. So much. Yes. The drama certainly was. And, and look, I only made it to collegiate tennis, but actually in a weird way, what I was watching yesterday reminded me a lot of our collegiate matches where you're the last one on the teams have, have leveled it. You're, you're carrying your whole team on your court. Maybe the level isn't great, but you're just trying your hardest to get something over where your body won't cooperate. I mean, it was relatable if anything, uh, which made it seem as hard as I'm sure it is to win a Grand Slam, right? Like winning a Grand Slam is not easy and the people we've had playing them have made it look like a walk in the park. And what yesterday's match actually was kind of refreshingly illustrative of is that it's really, really, really fucking hard to win a Grand Slam match. And it, the, it showed in their faces. Um, well, uh, I mean, just to finish it and put a button on it, the fact that you saw Roger Federer lose a Wimbledon final with two match points serving proves to you how hard it is to win a Grand Slam. So, um, yeah, I mean, kudos to both of them. I, I like them both so much as people, and I, I hope I hope I see them play another Grand Slam final in just a little bit better quality, but I hope that they bring just as much drama. I think they probably will. And I want to make a note, just because I, I do want to talk about the women a little bit before we talk about um, the clay swing that is is upon us. It's happening. Um, which is, you know, I mentioned college tennis a little bit ago. There was an NCAA champion into the semis who played an amazingly good match coming up a little bit short against Naomi Osaka, who is Jennifer Brady, who's having a bit of a breakout moment um, after having a couple years on tour, middling success, goes to Germany, gets a bunch of serious training under her belt for, I guess, a year or so, and then comes back rejuvenated. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about her run and whether college tennis might or might not have had anything to do with it. Well, listen, first of all, Jay Bray is some of the, is one of the coolest chicks on tour. She's so fun. She's so great to be around. She's so humble. Um, and, you know, I remember a couple of years ago when she played Carolina Pliskova in the, out in, I think it was the third round of the US Open. I mean, she was so, it was so beyond her. She was so overwhelmed by the moment. And then to see her a couple of years later have gone to where she's gone emotionally um, Michael Gessera, her coach now, has done such a great job at sort of bringing all the X's and O's into her game, making her train hard, making her work hard physically. She's got the fitness coach. She's got, you know, she's got all the right ingredients around her now. And when once you once you have the game, which she always had, and then once you have the right people around you, then you can reap the rewards. And that's what she's done. And she has everything in her game. She doesn't have a weakness. She has a huge serve. She has great, great forehand. She has a her backhand has improved so much. Her movement around the court is exceptional. She volleys well. Look, the, the, this kid can win a Grand Slam. There's no doubt about it. I just think when you think about how close she took Naomi Osaka in that match, she didn't, in my opinion, 
I don't think she really, really, really deep down inside believed she could win that match. And I think that's the only thing that cost her because her game was good enough to win that match. And then you saw what Naomi did by subsequently winning the tournament. So I hope Jen takes a lot of positivity away from this and knows that, you know what, next time I'm not going to let that chance slip and I'm going to really believe in myself. It sort of reminded me of Sam Stoza, first time she made the semifinals of the French Open and then subsequently won the US Open a few years later. But I think with Jan, she wasn't mature enough, wasn't good enough player, she would say, before she went to college. She was kind of, you know, a very shy kid and was wanted to leave Florida and get as far away as she could from um, her family. I mean, she says that, not her. Not, not because she doesn't like her family, just because she wanted to get away and, you know, have that moment. So she went to UCLA and she had a great coach there and Stella Sampras, of course, Pete Sampras's sister. And Stella basically pushed her out and said, Jenny, you're ready. Like, let's go after two years, similar to someone like Elisa Raymond, who dominated a college and was like, get out there and start proving yourself to the professional world. And it took her a little, a little time to get comfortable, but uh, we now see how good she is as a player. And there is no question in my mind, if she continues to do and play the way she does and believe in herself that she can win a Grand Slam, there's no doubt in my mind. Well, I do want to address the fact that, um, you know, college tennis is uh sort of a little bit more prominently discussed nowadays there are a lot of pros men and women who have played at least a year or two which for a long long time wasn't the case you know if you have to go back to the days of McEnroe really and Jimmy Connors and a few others who who played a couple years of college tennis obviously the Max played it at Stanford UCLA had a really good team but for the most part players would would skip straight to pros and I think that obviously works for a lot of players but I don't think, you know, it should be counted out that some can get, I mean, not if you're a player like me who like you're lucky to play college tennis and get a free education, but if you're somebody who's really, really good and maybe just needs a couple more, you know, years in the barrel, uh, as it were, yeah. to you get that refining. strength, to get that you need, variety. You need refining and you need confidence and you need to, to have time away from your family and home to know if you can't make it in college, you can't make it on the tour. Right. Uh, that's just bottom line. So if you, if you can make it in college and realize that you, you have the fortitude to, to, to play in a team environment, which is not easy to do and have the, the responsibility of winning all the time on your, on your team, um, you can then take those lessons learned on the tour. And I, I stress so much for people out there that have kids that they're not quite sure about, send them to college for a year. It can, it won't hurt them. If they're not ready, if they're not lighting the world on fire, don't take that opportunity away from them when they can have that, they can turn pro. Danielle Collins is a great example, a semifinals of the French Open, Australian Open. Now Jenny Brady, semifinals of the, of the US Open. These girls both went to college. Danielle Collins finished college. Yeah. So there's plenty of time. Women and men are now playing into their mid to late thirties on the tour. There's plenty of time. It's not a sprint anymore, it's a marathon. And if your kid isn't emotionally, isn't emotionally ready to be a professional, college is a great option to send them to a good college team with a good college coach and it would be great to see more local kids take advantage of it just because there, a lot of these teams are sort of under threat of being defunded and for me you know most of my college team was uh eastern european players who i loved and became really good friends with but it was interesting to sort of see how um few american kids seem to want to be able to make that part of their experience um you know so for me college tennis was uh you know obviously a transformative experience but i would also say some of my contemporaries went on you know and, and had decently successful pro careers but let's talk about the final let's talk about vika osaka mm. deserved awesome. a ton of attention naomi has had 
such an amazingly poignant moment. I, I don't think I can add to a lot of what's been said. You interviewed her on court, a lot of this tournament. Naomi deserved it. I'm so thrilled this is her moment. Um, you know, but Vika for me, what a fantastic, fantastic turn of events that we have her back. She's back. Do you think she's back? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, she's fully back. You know, I mean, obviously we had her on the podcast and, you know, we heard how tough the last year or two has been for her emotionally, career-wise, um, you know, just all the ups and downs that emotionally she's had to go through. So, yeah, for us, it was so great to see her do so well at the Western and Southern and end up, you know, winning the tournament. Obviously, she got the default in the final, but still so such a deserved um, tournament there. And then, and then to back it up, back it up to get to the finals of the U.S. Open and Honest to God, the two women's semifinals, wow. I mean, the standard of tennis between Serena and Azarenka was outrageously good. And yeah. I was courtside and, uh, I mean, they were they were just giving everything. It was so nice to just sit and watch two amazing champions just go at it and then, you know, shake hands at the end of it or tap rackets or whatever. And, and, and then that, that proceeded, that was after... The Jenny Brady and uh, and Osaka semifinal that was unbelievable. Yeah. So you know the women's standard and the fact that Vika could get through all of those matches again back to back. I mean she won. You know as I said she won played all those matches at Western Southern and back it up and have the run that she had in singles and make the final. And and I tell you she was, in my opinion, if she makes a better backhand shot at two love in the second 40-30 and wins her service game. I don't think she loses that match. It was the first shot of the day that I saw her get nervous was the backhand that she should have, in my opinion, put hit down the line and won the game. And she got a little tight and I noticed it right away. And I went, oh God, that was the first tight shot she's hit. And Naomi sensed it. And it was the same as what she did against Serena the night before when Serena missed the backhand return to go up two love. I saw tightness in Serena and a great champion like Vika picked up on that and said, okay, I'm still in this match. She's not good. She's not going to blow me off the court today. I'm hanging in there. And that's exactly what Naomi did in the final. So, you know, everybody out there, just because you're getting blown off the court doesn't mean that you can't win that match. I mean, look at the semis, the finals and look at the men's final. Uh, you just got to sometimes hang in there because it's really, really hard to play a perfect match. Yeah, it is. And I think that that evening of tennis following uh, the Osaka Brady match that you just mentioned is the, that was the night of the tournament. Those are the two best matches of the tournament by a large margin. I mean, it was large. so thrilling to watch because I truly didn't know who was going to win any of those matches. And I kind of decided going in, I was going to be so happy for whoever emerged yeah. not only from the, that night, but also holding the trophy over their head. Um, and I'm, I'm really pleased with how it, how it played out because I think Naomi, uh, this is her moment. It's a really, really profound and mature and amazingly stoic thing she was able to do. And she did it, which was not only play lights out tennis to lift her third Grand Slam trophy over her head, but also have a narrative about police killing black people unjustly in our streets in a way that was so impactful that she turned questions around on interviewers and mm -hmm. Japanese media is now doing profiles of young middle-aged women, men, people whose names have been on banners and on masks and are now coming to life in the imaginations of 
you know, people across the world who are trying to get an understanding of what's going on in our country. And it's because this girl was playing not only for herself, but for, for an idea. And it's really, really inspiring. And it makes me feel really good about where tennis is, especially on the women's side, just as a way to sort of speak to the culture and, and using, uh, using a platform to lead. I thought the tournament did a great job. I thought ESPN did a great job. And, and most notably Naomi Osaka, just all the credit in the world for, for not only making that her moment, but backing it up with a win. Because as Billie Jean King says, you know, they're not going to listen to you unless you win. She knew that. She yeah. wanted to put her money where her mouth was. Um, and she achieved greatness uh, for gender equality. Naomi Osaka is in the middle of fighting for the same thing. And, and I think we're all, we're all behind her. So with that said, going into Clay, I was so happy this morning, Renee, when I woke up very early, as you know, I do. Uh, and I turned on the TV and it was already like middle of the match for, from Rome today. It was so nice to see clay courts on my screen. It was so nice to have the European timing. So matches were already happening in the morning. I'm thrilled. What can we expect in the next couple of weeks as the tournament, uh, as is the center of gravity in the tennis world goes to Europe and then culminates, I guess, with, uh, the, with Roland Garros, a French Open that's going to be held under some kind of normal circumstances? What, what, what are we well. looking at? Well, I think the French Federation has to do a bit of tweaking to their protocols is what I'm hearing. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. They know what the USDA went through. They know what the US Open went through. They also know, other than a one or two situations with Benoit and those players, how successful it was for them. So I think they start to get a little bit panicky when their you know, COVID uh, cases in, in Europe are definitely not flat. They are definitely going up in various uh, places, including Paris, including France. Um, so I think they're going to have to tweak a little bit of the protocols about how players house, what hotels, what they're doing, how they're getting around the site, how they're getting around the city, because it's very different to how the US Open was put on. So I think they have to be very, very careful. Um, if they manage to get the tournament going. Um, they're reevaluating how many fans are going to be letting in, which it's pretty incredible that they're even thinking about doing that. Um, it's going to be interesting to see when the first ball is hit at, at Roland Garros, what the protocols are going to be. Cause I have a feeling they're going to change a lot in the next couple of weeks. Now, having said that players are also in Rome. Uh, they are supposed to stay in the hotel, supposed to stay in the bubble. But again, I don't think it's as tightly monitored as it was at the U S open. So on that note, players are going to have to really behave themselves to get through this time without having a positive test because if you have one or two positive tests it really can turn the whole tournament into a shit show um <laughs> so so we'll see caitlin i mean i know that you love the red clay and i'm hoping that roland garros goes off with no glitches um let me just, that's up that's up to the players to behave let themselves let me just ask you a question uh look we're sitting in a country where half of this nation or at least the vocal minority can't handle wearing a mask to safeguard the well-being of others uh and they can go fuck themselves because my kid's not allowed back in well, that's school. what no. that's what i was about to say and they can go fuck themselves they truly can um what is it about these tennis players that's hard about staying in a bubble is this just kind of human fallacy or is there something specific about the individual nature of tennis that makes you really 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 have a hard time following no, I, don't, I don't think it's got anything to do with tennis to be honest with you Kate. Yeah. i think it just said it's just a human it's just a human nature to hug and to, you know, high five and to want to go to dinner out, not have room service in your room every night and like want to walk the streets of Paris or Rome or New York or, 
you know, Istanbul or Prague. You want to go out, you want to see people. You just say, uh, I'm fine, I'm not sick. Like maybe I can just go for a quick dinner, you know? So it's just, it's, it's human nature. It's, got, it's really not tennis players. It's, it, I think it's human nature. And I think that there are some people that really are very, uh, uh, you know, adverse to causing any problems or being uh, troubled, you know, being the one that's going to be the, the problem child. And then you've got the ones like the, uh, you know, Benoit pairs who are like, ah, I'm just going to scoot skirt around the, uh, the rules a little bit and I'll be fine. You know, so it's up to the individual players and to protect all the players, you have to protect yourself. And, you know, those 10 or 11 players that were around Benoit playing cards, I'm sure they're not too happy with him either. So it's a, it's a double combination. You want to be the one, go ahead, go out, go have dinner, go to a bar, whatever. Who on a, on a more positive note, and we can leave it here. Cause I'm sure we'll be checking in at least at some point in the tournament favorites uh who's well poised for this you have to imagine rafa on the men's side is i mean in any situation he's he's the presumptive favorite but especially because he's been training on clay the whole time like he didn't even bother with the, the hardcore season he's just in there getting him his mind perfectly aligned to win a, yet another roland garros title can anybody come close to stopping him yeah i think dominic team and i think novak will be there i think that they are good enough on clay to beat him um but he definitely goes in as the favorite again. Shocker. Uh, what is this? 22 is going to win. Uh, I mean, it's just insane. I don't even know. I lost count. I mean, it's just insane. Uh, so he definitely is going in the favor, but I think Dominic team's got to feel really good about that's a huge amount of confidence to win a grand slam. You, you know, sure. even if you haven't beaten top the top three, you still believe that you can do it. And yeah, he's been, been the finals for the past two years, slowly creeping up on Rafa last year. He got a set two years ago, exactly. he got a single set and maybe he finds himself there again. You know, all he needs is three sets. All he needs. Well, and 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 when you when you have beaten someone and when you've done it and you know how to win a slam and you know what emotions it's going to be and you believe in yourself, I think he believes in himself. So yeah, I think Dominic and Novak were the uh, the only two that can even remotely be close to Rafa. And on the women's side, I mean, you know, I'll give it a I'll give it a beat or two just to see how Rome goes. Rome's always got such a great indicator for me. But and Simona Halep is going to be there, obviously, because again, she's been playing only on clay this whole time mm-hmm. um so i think she'll definitely be she's the definite definite um uh favorite uh naomi yeah I, i'd be surprised if naomi plays to be honest the french open yeah clay's um, the surface under the best of circumstances and obviously yeah. there's a little bit of an injury with that hammy which is not yeah i can't i just i i don't think clay's her best surface and you never know we'll see um but so mona goes in as favorite and then um you know the usual suspects that are hanging around from time to time. Um, but, you know, with the way women's tennis is going, who the hell knows is going to win well, the French? One dark horse who you have gotten to know very well in the last couple of months, and we should leave it here. Um, you know, your, your, uh, your friend, the Montrealer Eugenie Bouchard, was announced to have a wild card into the main draw. Um, yeah. Such great news just because she's had such a, like, great couple of weeks getting the final from making qualies into Istanbul just a couple of days ago, had a good crack at maybe winning that championship coming up short, but like, you know, into a third set breaker, like she's in, she's in, she's playing well. She's on the up. Um, I'm sure you've, you've connected with her. Is she thrilled to be getting into the main draw? Yeah. I'm really proud of her. Uh, obviously, you know, gone through a bit of a tough year or two with her ranking dropping down into, I think 
it was 340 when I started working with her. So, so the fact that she's, you know, wants to be willing enough to grind it out. Um, she went and played Prague, a, you know, a tournament in Prague about, a, well, we went about five weeks ago. She made the quarters there and had some really good wins over Kudamatova, who beat Pliskova at the US Open. And she lost a really tight match against Mertens, who we know had a great US Open as well. And then, you know, she just uh, made the finals in Istanbul. She beat Kuznetsov, a former French Open champion, on, on route to that, winning seven matches there, getting through quali. So, yeah, I think it was a really deserved wild card. She's made the semis of the French Open before. You know, she's obviously a top five former player. She's really grinding and working her way back. She's working with Gil Reyes, and he's done a great job with her physically. So, yeah, I think it was really very thankful to the French Federation for giving it to her. But, you know, sometimes when someone has deserved it, and she, I feel like, has deserved it over the last six weeks with her wins and from her past and what she's done there in the past, I think it's, yeah, we'll see how she goes. Uh, if she gets through a round or two, she's definitely one of those players that believes in herself. So we'll see. Well, there's lots to watch for. So obviously we'll have to check back in. Uh, and we'll do it in person because I'll make the effort to walk over to you after another. Yeah, can you walk like three friggin' blocks? It's not that far to me, you know. You? Maybe. I've had enough of Zoom, okay? I've just called a US Open talking to commentators that are in different rooms. I'd Good. like to at least get in a, into a room. Uh, I know, yeah. I know. want to see me in person. I get it. Everybody does. Get in line. Yeah. All right. Until soon, my friend. Be well. All right. Au, au revoir. <laughs> And that's it for this episode of the Racket Magazine podcast. Thanks for listening. Our host is Renee Stubbs. Our co-host and producer is me, Caitlin Thompson. Music by internationally renowned DJ Stretch Armstrong. Thanks to Tim Ruggieri and the team at Acast. Find us at racketmag.com slash podcast and subscribe to us at any of your favorite podcatchers. 